Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. A quick warning about the interview you're about to hear. There is some talk about sex in it, mostly just body parts talk. So if you or someone with whom you're listening might be sensitive to that kind of thing, just a a heads up. Anyway, my guest is Lisa Hannawalt. She's a writer and a cartoonist. She's the creator of Tuca and Birdie, one of my favorite television shows. It's a show about two women, anthropomorphic bird women. They live in Birdtown. Tuca is a toucan. She's outgoing and fun, but also kind of a mess. She doesn't really have a solid job. Birdie, her best friend, is a songbird. A little bit of a homebody, shy, deferential. When the show starts, she's just moved in with her boyfriend. A lot of the problems Tuca and Birdie encounter are human and grounded. Relationship stuff, work problems, sexual harassment. But the world they live in is anything but. It is breathtakingly drawn and completely surreal. Phones talk, hospital equipment talks, plants walk. If you've ever seen Lisa's work before, she's written four books and was a producer on BoJack Horseman, it will give you some sense of what all this is like. In fact, Lisa based Tuca and Birdie on characters from her books, characters she's lived with for a long time and sees almost as extensions of herself. When we talked in 2019, Tuca and Birdie had just debuted on Netflix. It has since moved over to Adult Swim, and its second season will premiere in June, which gives you just enough time to binge season one. And I do recommend that you do that. Anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit of the show's nearly perfect first season. As I said, Birdie has just moved in with her boyfriend, which means Tuca, her roommate, starts moving out. In this season, Birdie calls Tuca for an update on the move-out process. So when do you want to come over to get your things? You're not officially moved out until you've taken out your last box of stuff. Sure, sure, I'll come get it later. I'm just picking out some decor for my new place. Tuca, are you getting junk off the street again? No, I'm purchasing consumer goods with my job money. You don't have a job. Just because I don't have a boring office job like you doesn't mean I'm not swimming in gigs. Mobile notary, fortune teller, unlicensed tour guide, dog walker, cashing checks from my rich auntie, mobile notary again, and uh, freelance junk collectors. Anywho, I'm swinging by our place. I mean, your place later today. <laughs> Lisa, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm happy to see you. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on this show. I am just over the moon about how much I love it. I just <laughs> Thank think you. it's so great. Thank you. Um, were you scared to make a television show? <laughs> of course I was. I'm scared of everything. <laughs> but I mean, like, I... I was like, this will be a catastrophe, the biggest failure yet. <laughs> Lisa, I am, I am such a fan of your comics, and I'm such a fan of your work on BoJack Horseman as well. It's my favorite part of a great show. And oh, thanks. But that said, your comics are more impressionistic than they are narrative. They're not not narrative. Yeah. But they, you know, timelines are loose. Uh, lists are incorporated it's, frequently. It's loose. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, Lisa's been working on a TV show for a long time. They're also like wild. They're like wildly... 
there's just a lot of ideas going different places. Yeah, it's a little untethered and to I reality. Thought, <laughs> I thought, is how does this become a sitcom? Yeah. Like, that was my thought. I was worried. That was that was why it took so long to develop the show is because I was talking with the sh- about the show ideas with Raphael and we kind of wanted it to resemble my comic books. But it was sort of hard to make a show that did that. It was going to be kind of like a one woman anthology. Uh, but then I just kept coming back to these characters of Tuca and Birdie. And honestly, the shows I like to watch are sitcoms. So I was just like, maybe I should learn how to make one. What kind of sitcoms do you like to watch? I mean, I love Friends. I've watched it so many times. It's just so comforting. (laughs) Is that just because it like relates to your adolescence when it was on television? Perhaps. Yeah, there's a little bit of nostalgia there. Um, I don't know. I just think the characters are really well defined and I don't know. It's just comforting. I hate friends. That's fair. That's totally fair. I'm not saying it to attack you. I'm just confessing it. I don't feel attacked. (laughs) I really like Lisa Kudrow. She's the best one. All of the cast members of Friends do a great job. She's... Lisa Kudrow is absolutely the best one. Phoebe's the best character. She uh, deserves so much better on that show. (laughs) Did you imagine when you were a kid or a teen that uh, Friends was what adulthood might be like? I don't know. Because, like, I wonder sometimes if I thought, like, Seinfeld or News Radio or the shows that I loved when I was an adolescent I or also, Cheers. I also loved News Radio so like, much. Like, I used to watch Cheers with my dad. And, like, Cheers actually is very sad show. Cheers is too sad for me. <laughs> News radio does feel like what adulthood is like. <laughs> News radio feels very accurate. Just once a year you're in space for no reason. Yes. <laughs> we all have a Matthew in our lives. Uh, yeah, very relatable. <laughs> so when you were developing the show into, you know, when you were creating your own sitcom <laughs> and you started with the idea that it would be as loose as your comics, or at least reflect the spirit of your comics. How do you match that up with the, you know, the kind of tight strictures of what a sitcom is, which is, you know, a visit with a family who are your friends? It's it's really hard. Um, it's a process of me learning the structure of how to write a script in the sitcom style. You know, here's act one, act two, like... Um, Uh, and then kind of doing that and then feeling like that's too tight and then loosening it back up again. So um, it was a whole, you know, learning experience, learning the process of writing a show. Like I would write the scripts and then we would tell the directors like, well, here's the script, but unlike BoJack, this doesn't need to be as strictly script-based. Like you can take scenes out, you can add scenes, you can break up the format, you can do claymation or puppetry if you want to do that for a scene. Like, have fun with it. You know, we we gave them my comic books and we're like, look how crazy these are. Feel free to incorporate <laughs> some of this into the episodes. Um, and so they kind of went nuts adding stuff. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by, and it was also one of the things that I was worried about, is I think your <laughs> comics are so funny. I'm glad you were so concerned. <laughs> <laughs> look, I hold you in very high regard, Lisa. I wanted it to be a success and it totally is. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, and I, I thought, you know, your comics are so funny. But there are so few jokes in your comics. The things that I find myself laughing at are like audacious ideas that I connect with emotionally in some surprising way. Yeah. More than a gag. I mean, I can write a joke. I just I feel like this weird situations and like um, things that kind of don't seem like they should go together. And then they make you laugh and you're not quite sure where the laugh is coming from is to me my favorite form of humor. When writing the scripts, it's like the jokes are kind of the last step. 
you can just kind of lay our jokes on top of everything else. And that's the easiest part in a way. One of the things that is in your comics that's also in the show and also was part of your design of the characters and the aesthetics of BoJack Horseman is things being kind of simultaneously uncomfortably sexual and also <laughs> like anti-sexual. Yeah. Um, I really like that push pull where you're like, <laughs> well, this is making me horny and that makes me upset. <laughs> And now I'm mad. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to make you, like, have a crush on a plant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to slap boobs on a building. That's what I was about to bring up. Like, Is that the, sexy? I don't know. In the montage <laughs> at the beginning of the show, in the opening credit sequence, there's a building that has boobs. Yeah. The boobs are, like, doing a dance. And, I mean, speaking as a heterosexual man, I'm conditioned or biologically predisposed to uh, think of boobs sexually. Yeah. But we all are. I'm not I can't say the same about buildings. <laughs> um, some people, some people are true. really into buildings. That's true. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, that was a real a real kind of scene setter like, hey, warning, there's going to be stuff like this in this show. If you don't like this, maybe don't <laughs> watch it. And also, you know, like this is for adults and we're going to recontextualize female body parts in a weird way. It is very conscious of women's bodies in particular in a way that your comics are, but not a lot of television shows mm -hmm. are. Was that something that you think came from a choice you made or just a natural predilection that you have? Well, I grew up, you know, with the same media as everyone else. And so I'm used to looking at women's bodies in a certain context and in music videos and in advertisements and stuff. And so I think um, part of me drawing them a lot is kind of reclaiming that a little bit, like just kind of taking all that in and spitting it back out in my own way, where it's, you know, coming from the direct experience of a woman who's grown up in a world where that stuff is the norm. Um, so it's still sometimes male gazy, but then it's also female gazy. And it's sort of like, well, here's what I like about looking at the female form. And uh, yeah, they can be sexy. We do have like an upskirt shot, you know, <laughs> while they're dancing. Like, um, I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> what, what could be sexier than that? <laughs> <laughs> I like sexy stuff. But I think I think coming from my perspective, it's maybe a little bit different from uh, other shows who are that are created by men. Like, you know, not all my characters are like big titty, tiny waist. <laughs> Can I say titty on this show? You just did. <laughs> We're going to have to ask a nice man named Mark at NPR. <laughs> we'll find out later. So, I I mean, I like, you know, showing different kinds of body types. I think a lot of different kinds of bodies can be sexy. So, I don't know. I'm just making the show I want to watch. So, when you were on the show a few years ago, we talked a little bit about your character designs for BoJack Horseman. And the really strong opinions that some internet communities have shared with you about certain choices in depicting anthropomorphized animals. Oh, are you talking about the tails? Yes. <laughs> Specifically, I'm talking about whether horsemen have tails. Right. I believe Bojack does not have a tail, at least a, a visible tail. But There's no tails on Bojack. But they felt very strongly and frankly rudely expressed to you uh, that they demanded you to I believe it was remake the first season with Tails yeah they thought we should go back and reanimate the whole thing I think they didn't quite have an understanding of the process or budget or um, you know interest in doing that but I thought it was a very fun email to get I mean Game of Thrones took out that Starbucks cup so 
Did they? Yeah. They fixed it? So you just put in the tails. I think leave it in. Show a little of the process. <laughs> uh, I think there are some tails on Tuca and Birdie. I think there's a, a the deli guy, the monkey man. I think he has a tail. So I what I wonder is when you are creating anthropomorphized birds, which is the greater part of the characters on the show because they live in a bird town. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe they live in bird town. It's called bird town. Yeah. Uh, it's about seven hours away from Horseville. <laughs> do you do you make choices about what things you are going to make person like and what things you are going to make bird like? Because birds have breasts, for example, but they don't have breasts. Yeah, uh, just kind of a gut feel. Most of the characters don't have tails because they're more humanoid, but then there are some non-anthropomorphic animals. There's a bird that flies around, but it has a tail, but it also has boobs, just because that's funny to me. (laughs) Um, There's, like, trains that are snakes and slugs. There's just giant snakes. (laughs) There's plant people. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It comes down to each individual object or character. Birdie's phone comes alive and speaks to her because it makes sense to me for it to do so. Have you gotten feedback about the choices that you've made on the new show? Uh, I think some people are just like, whoa, this is too weird. Um, <laughs> it's very weird. But most people, I think, are into it. Like, it, I think there's a logic to the world that makes sense once you get past how strange it is at first. It's like, yeah, the fast train is a snake and the slow train is a slug. Who doesn't understand that? It's like it's like Richard Scarry kind of stuff, but for adults. We've all grown up like reading books with surreality and animal people and stuff, so I don't think it's that odd. Sometimes TV shows have uh, what's called the Bible, which is like a list of rules of the universe. Yeah. And, you know, that that might be... We have a Bible. Yeah. How do you make a Bible so that your insane (laughs) surreality is consistent from episode to episode? I mean, our Bible is more about how we want it to look and like what the animation should do and like how we like it when Tuca's turned to the side and looks like a hieroglyphic. That's like the iconic Tuca pose. So we're like, let's keep her in this, you know, sideways pose as much as possible. Um, As far as the rules of the universe, we just work it out in the writer's room for the most part. Each, Each episode we break, we're like, well, would this happen? Does it make sense for this? Like, can an ultrasound machine come to life? And yeah, it made me laugh so hard in the room that absolutely yes. Um, so yeah, we're kind of just building it as we go along. I don't like to define like the hard sci-fi of a world before I've written the story. I think it's kind of limiting. Can you give me an example other than the ultrasound machine of <laughs> something that you had to work out the rules of while you all were sitting there? Uh, very early on in the process, I remember I was talking about the universe with Raphael, um, who's uh, the exec producer, and he's the creator of BoJack, and he helped me develop Tuca and Birdie. And he said, okay, so in this universe, like, is Bird Town in USA, like in the United States? And I was like, yeah, I think so. He's like, is there a China in this world? And I said, I don't know. And he said, is there Chinese food? And I said, yes. So I guess there has to be a China. <laughs> Did uh, the characters come out of an idea you had about things that I would think of as word things? like uh, personal qualities or things like that? Or did they come from things that I would think of as picture things, (laughs) like big beaks and colors? I mean, Tuca was kind of born out of me watching a nature documentary about toucans. And one of them was like stealing eggs out of other birds' nests and gobbling them up. And the other birds were building their nests longer and longer to try to avoid these long toucan beaks, stealing their young 
uh, and I thought, oh, that's me because I'm so greedy with food. That's definitely me. That's my id. So then I made up this character who could kind of like be and express like all the things that I don't because I live in polite society. Um, so that was just fun for me. Uh, you sort of live in polite society. Sort of. You skirt the edges of polite society. Getting Lisa. less polite. By I've the read day. your books, Lisa. <laughs> I do whatever I can get away with. Yeah. And then Birdie uh, came out of a comic I made that was a little bit more earnest and less funny uh, about a couple buying a house. And she was obsessed with plants and she filled the whole house with plants to kind of push him away emotionally. Uh, and it was a very personal story. So when we were developing the show, I just kind of felt like those were two characters I'd invented that I wanted to see more of. And they kind of felt like they wrote themselves to me. They were kind of like two different aspects of my own personality, but also reminded me of like friends that I have. Even more with Lisa Hanawalt still to come. Stick around. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Running a company is hard, but over 6 million people found a way to make it easier thanks to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, e-commerce, manufacturing, inventory management, you name it, Odoo's got it. Each app is user-friendly, intuitive, and fully integrated. For a free trial of Odoo, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. What happens after a police officer shoots someone who's unarmed? For decades in California, internal affairs investigations, how the police police themselves, were secret. Until now. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Lisa Hannawalt, is the acclaimed author of the books Hot Dog Taste Test and My Dirty Dumb Eyes. She was a producer on the hit animated show BoJack Horseman, and she has her own show, Tuca and Birdie. Its second season debuts this June on Adult Swim. I want to play a clip from Tuca and Birdie, and my guest is the creator of the show, Lisa Hanawalt. And so Birdie works at uh, Condé Nest, mm-hmm. which is a magazine publishing firm. And she's not a gla- she doesn't have a glamorous job. She's a data analyst. And she is trying to put herself in line for a promotion. She's kind of being talked over in meetings by a, a loud, jerky dude And she's pretty shy and she's not even sure that her boss notices that she does good work. And so she has this plan that she's going to convince him to notice her, then promote her by making high quality small talk. Colin. Oh, good morning, Bertie. That was some nice weather we had over the weekend, eh? It just makes you want to go to the beach. Did you go to the beach? Oh, no. I mean, I thought about it, but it's a long drive, and I'm afraid of crabs. <laughs> you guys talking about the beach? You gonna catch some waves out there, Harlan Dog? Uh-huh. You know it, duck. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Booyah! Water sports! Ba-bow! <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I have nightmares about that part of the ocean where the water gets super dark because it's so deep. <laughs> like, what if there's a giant monster crab down there waiting to pinch my butt? <laughs> Cartooning is a very solitary profession. Mm-hmm. And television is the opposite very, of that. Very, very communal, yes. <laughs> 
And I wonder, you know, when you started working on BoJack and then, you know, started being in charge of a show, what it was like going from sitting at a drafting table or a computer by yourself in your house with a croissant <laughs> to just like would presume what you're up to. Uh, Always with my trusty croissant. Look, I've seen Caroline in the city. I know a little something about this. It's what adults are like. Two, an office office. Like, it's one weird thing about show business is how p- sad the offices are. <laughs> I think you're like, the acoustic tiling? Really? We're making we're making American gladiators or whatever. Yeah, even ours, which is really nice, but there's no windows. So it's really, like, I get kind of sad in there. Um, it was really hard, especially running the writer's room, because I'd only sat in the BoJack writer's room a couple of times, and it was terrifying. So to suddenly be in there and be in charge was just... Um, it was so I, I just wasn't used to like sitting and looking at other people for seven hours, like and just my my neck and shoulders would hurt from just like nodding at people to show them that I was like listening to their ideas. Like it was like I was learning how to like be a human because um, I was used to like sitting alone in my office working at my desk all day. Um, but after a couple of weeks, I just got used to it. It's amazing like what you can adapt to. Did you get used to being the boss and decider? Not really, but, um, you know, I go at it with a very collaborative point of view. I know it's ultimately up to me and I get to decide. And if I feel strongly about something, I can, you know, decide that and that feels great. But I can always ask people what they think. Uh, I can let the wonderful artists and directors and editors and writers who work on my show have a say. And that feels really good because they improve things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable being called a boss. There are three leads of the show. Uh, and none of them are white, and certainly none of them are white dudes. You've got Stephen Yun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali Wong. Ali, the great Ali Wong. Tiffany Haddish. My, my bud from San Francisco, Tiffany Haddish, the legendary uh, Tiffany Haddish. Was that a choice that you made or a matter of happenstance? Kind of both. Um, I wanted to make sure we didn't end up with an all-white cast because that's happened so often before in both live action and animation. Um, and then just looking at, you know, auditions and stuff, this this was just the best possible cast. There was no way around it. Like, um, we got Tiffany signed on very early, and then it was a matter of finding a birdie that would sound great with Tiffany. Uh, and Allie was the best, absolutely. And they already knew each other. They had great chemistry. Um, and then, yeah, Stephen Young just had the best audition. Stephen Young's good. He's so good. He's very, I, I can't believe, like, how quickly he can go from comedy to drama. Like, I've, I don't quite know any other actor who can do it like him. I'm not surprised to hear that Tiffany Haddish was cast first on the show because she is such a dynamo of a performer. Like, she's just such a force. Yeah. When I saw Girls Trip, I just said, that's a Tuca. Like, (laughs) it was just undeniable. What were the qualities that you saw in her as a performer that made you think that's a Tuca? Absolutely fearless, incredibly funny. But also, like, had an earnestness or vulnerability. Like, you know, like, she, the way she, like, stood up for her friends in the movie. Like, I don't know. She just kind of hit, like, every quadrant of what I wanted. Um, And then I was reading an article, and I recognized uh, the name of her manager at the time, and I knew him. So I was like, oh, my God, we can get a script to her. And we did, and she said yes right away, and I cried. (laughs) It was a great day. Do you think of that character who is so bold and often fearless and, I don't know, lives out loud or whatever cliche you want to use as aspirational or cautionary? 
Um, I think it's aspirational to people like me who tend to be more on the birdie side of things. I'm I'm just always trying to like behave myself in reality, even though I'm kind of unleashed in my art. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think she just seems like she's having a good time. But then you listen to like her her book. Her I, I listened to it as a book on tape, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe like how much she's gone through in her life. And clearly, she's just someone who can get by in any situation. Like she's gonna survive. Do you write things for Tuca that are things that you would like to imagine yourself doing? Uh, yeah, wearing short shorts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> First and foremost. <laughs> She's very comfortable in short shorts. A lot of the things Tuca does reminds me of how I was in my 20s, more like how I lived. Um, and then Birdie's sort of more like I am now, which isn't to, to call Tuca immature. I don't believe that about her at all. But um, I think I just changed as a person. What changed? Um... I used to be like more kind of like I just kind of put everything out there and I was really tactless and I lived in a messy apartment and like I, you know, didn't have my stuff together. But in some ways I was like kind of having more fun. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm more careful now. Does writing that kind of character make you think about the consequences of living in that way? Because she doesn't live without consequences. Yeah. And we see that Um, she's having trouble like forming intimate relationships with anyone other than Birdie. Uh, and I think that feels pretty true to life. To you? Yeah. Yeah, I think if, like, you're kind of struggling to get by and, like, you're a mess and, like, you're used to being kind of loud and out there, that could maybe be, like, a defense mechanism. Um, she's also, she's sober, so we kind of see, like, she gets, like, socially anxious in situations where in the past she might have, like, had a drink or five to lubricate the situation. So she's having trouble, like, going on dates or, you know, meeting new people. How did you decide to make her sober? It was just a way to kind of flesh out her character a little more um, and kind of deepen her. I didn't want her to just be, like, the wild, crazy, wacky friend who supports Birdie on her emotional arc. You know, she needed her own stuff. And I have a lot of friends um, now that we're in our 30s who are sober and for a lot of them, it wasn't this, like, dramatic thing where they hit rock bottom and now they relapsed. And, you know, it's it's kind of more just like a quiet decision about how they wanted their lives to be. Um, and I think there's something interesting about showing that and showing what those struggles are. They're a little bit, like, more subtle. We'll wrap up with Lisa Hanawalt in just a bit. When we come back from a break, it's time for Horse Talk with Lisa Hanawalt. She got a horse. She named the horse. It's a very cute horse. What's its name? Stay tuned. Folks in the industry, we call that a tease. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor HelloFresh. With over 25 recipes to choose from weekly and no grocery store trips needed, HelloFresh makes getting dinner on the table easy again amid your busy schedule. HelloFresh is fresh, pre-portioned ingredients are sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm to your front door in under a week, contact-free. For 12 free meals, including free shipping on your first box, go to hellofresh.com bullseye12 and use promo code bullseye12. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. 
And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. <laughs> or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lisa Hanawalt. She's a cartoonist, a writer, and a podcast host. She created the animated comedy show Tuca and Birdie. It's a sitcom about two bird women who live in a city called Birdtown, and it is so great. The show's second season is set to kick off this June on Adult Swim. Lisa and I talked about the show in 2019. Let's talk about some of the things that come up as themes in your work. And generally, often they come up in Tuca and Birdie, too. Mm -hmm. One of them is food. Yeah. You're now, Birdie on the show is a chef, a pastry chef, mm -hmm. at least beginning as she begins as an accomplished amateur pastry chef. And you are not a chef. No, I'm a terrible cook. Do you cook? Can you, can you cook anything? Yeah, I'll, I'll make something in like the Instapot and Instant Pot, sorry. And, you know, I, yeah, there's a couple things I make, but I, I tend to eat the same food over and over again, like 90% of the time. So. What are the foods that you eat over and over again? Oh, I make like chicken chili verde or I'll make like a chicken curry in the Instant Pot, my favorite. I'll make stuff in the rice cooker. I don't know, simple egg dishes. <laughs> Do you eat like the same thing for breakfast every day? Pretty much. What is it? Usually like a slice of gluten-free toast with nut butter and a banana. Sometimes eggs, if I'm really feeling it. How do you come up with all of the foods that are featured in Birdtown? I, uh, I mean, I love, I, I really like thinking about the food industry. And like I, I wrote for Lucky Peach for a long time. So I kind of, I, I've been on the periphery of that for a while. So I kind of like making up stuff that makes fun of food industry things. Like, I mean, the crunt. Which is like a Kroller bunt cake combo is kind of making fun of the cronut guy quite a bit. Um, so we made up a lot of really silly pastries. Can you tell me a few more of the pastries that you came? Was this like a day in the writer's room? Uh, it was just a con continual process in the writer's room of coming up with new things. Well, the, the same like one giant piece of paper on one of the walls. Somebody's like, sorry, I know we're working on story right now, but I got a new baked good. Here are some new pastries. Well, it's the same guy in the show who invents the crunt later comes up with the croont. And that's a croissant bun cake. And then by then, you know, you think he's a genius at the beginning. By then you're like, maybe this guy's kind of a hack. I don't know. Um, and then Birdie starts to come up with stuff. So she comes up with shoquettes, which are like a kind of spaghetti version of shoquettes. Uh, and then she comes up with the sweet beak pastry, which is like a little bird head filled with lemon curd pastry. There's something kind of like immediately sensual yeah. about your, like, the, the way that you draw everything is either slightly sexual or slightly foodie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, so it fits so perfectly into this world that there would be these almost like fetishized, weird joke foods. Yeah. I, I mean, I like I like like Miyazaki movies where the food is always looks so delicious. And I know we didn't have like even a fraction of that animation budget or time, but I just wanted to get a little bit of that feeling in there. But also, like, Tuco's really keen on keeping meat in drawers. Yeah, that's really disgusting. 
<laughs> she treats food pretty differently from, from Birdie. Not quite the same respect there. So let's talk about horses now. Oh, gladly. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't wait for you to bring it up. <laughs> um, so were you a uh, horse girl as a kid? Yeah. I started taking riding lessons when I was eight and immediately switched from being a cat girl to a horse girl. Like, it was just immediate. Is cat girl a type of girl? Yeah, I was into cats. Like, really into cats. Thought I was a cat. Oh. And then I was like, no, I'm a horse. How old were you when you started taking riding lessons? Uh, Eight. What was it about horses? Don't know. It's like, I don't know, just picture, like, your favorite thing or like your favorite food or something and then try to explain why you like it so much i don't know it's like just chemical you have a horse now right i do i got her like five months ago did you have you been a horse rider throughout your life i quit for 17 years why is that um i got scared like i had a couple accidents and then it just became too much to me to try to keep it up during high school and college um and it's you know kind of expensive and uh, I was just like, yeah, I don't want to do this. It's too dangerous. Um, and then Adam bought me some riding lessons for my birthday because I was thinking about it and I didn't want to commit. And then he just did it. And then I just got back into it. And that was about five years ago. And then with Juniper, my horse, I I was, it was like kind of during a lull in production when we were done with the riding process. Um, we were done with most of design. And it was just kind of sitting in edit bays all day. And I was feeling like a little depressed. And I was like, I'm not really doing anything creative. What am I doing with my life? Um, and then I just kind of found this Facebook ad for, for Juniper and I bought her. Wait, you bought your horse from a Facebook ad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the same way you'd buy an outboard motor? Pretty much. It was the same as buying a car. Like I... Uh, we called up the trainer selling her and my riding teacher went to test ride her and then I went for two test rides. I just was like, okay. And then she was just delivered. Brought a coin to check the tires. Yeah, I kicked her tires. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of horse is your horse? She's a fjord. Which is a Norwegian That's horse. That's a type of geography. Yeah. It's that also, it's, also they horse. are the horses that can live in that part of the world. <laughs> I've seen a picture of it. There was a picture of uh, you on the horse in the New York Times, which I was thrilled, <laughs> thrilled right. to see. How often do you get to see somebody you know on a horse in the New York Times? That's <laughs> uh, a life highlight for sure. Uh, but your horse is, appears to be quite stout. Yeah. She's very short with stumpy legs and she's round like a yoga ball. But she's really strong. Why did you pick that kind of horse, a weird stout horse, (laughs) rather than... It's an adorable horse. She's very cute. And I'm not a horse person, but it's an adorable horse. But why did you want a funny, stout, strong horse instead of... (laughs) Like most people... I mean, I'm I'm funny, stout, and strong. (laughs) No, I mean, part of it is that I had visited Norway a couple years ago when I went for a comics festival. They flew me out there, and I went for a horse ride because I was like, oh, it's Norway. That means I get to meet this kind of horse that I've always thought was so cute. Um, I've liked them ever since I was a little kid. Um, So I went on a ride on one, and... And she was just so great and strong and calm and tame. And then when I saw this Facebook ad, it was for a horse that was like identical to the one I'd ridden. So that was part of it. What's her personality like? Um, She loves people. She loves attention. She has very strong opinions. Um, What does a horse have strong opinions about? How fast they get to go on the way home. (laughs) 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 And which direction they want to go. But she's also very, very affectionate, and she wants to be good and do a good job, which is good. So mostly we're on the same page. It's a little strange to me, 
and tell me if this is strange to you, that here in Los Angeles, you can go to Burbank. Yeah. Which is, in most ways, the most extraordinarily normal suburb of all normal suburbs. Yeah. And then you're out by the Pickwick Bowl. And then there's just people riding horses around like that was a way that you get from a suburban locale to suburban locale. You can ride them in the street. You could ride them through the drive through There's like light switch plates to cross the street and they're up like six feet high so that you can press them from horseback. It's amazing. It's like a dream. There's people that have horses in their backyards there. It's just all zoned for it. It's so confusing to me. <laughs> yeah. Lisa. It's funny, like the whole drive to the barn, I'm constantly looking out the window like, oh, horses. And then I ride my horse. And then the whole drive back home, I'm like, oh, look, horses. <laughs> <laughs> I go to the, there's a vintage textile show at the, at the Pickwick there in Burbank in the horse district of Burbank. It's like right across from the equestrian center. Yeah. yeah. And, and you'll, I'll be driving there. And then there's just a horse in the street. Yeah, it's really... Like it belongs there and not on a hill. I love how surreal it is. I really <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> it's a little bit like your show. I mean, like yeah. your show is like these animals that are weirdly in between animal world and people world. Yeah. To like me, they're it's... not just straight substitutes for people. No, they still have their animal qualities. Yeah, I like that kind of contradiction. Like... I like that I'm, like, walking my horse down the street, literally in front of people's houses and front lawns, and then there's someone, like, walking a Labrador, like, on the other side of the street. It's just funny. My wife's childhood best friend, one of her childhood best friends, is an equine therapist. Mm. And years ago, so she works with horses every day, and years ago she was a horse guide of some kind and was thrown. Oh, no. And, like, came close to being killed. Oh, no. She fully recovered. And as I said, she still works with horses today. But I thought to myself, you know, there's people who are afraid of dogs and dogs can bite. And I love dogs. Yeah. But the like one or two times that I've been on a horse and it hasn't been since I was like 13, but I was terrified. Yeah, I get scared every time. Like, I'm going to go riding right after this, actually. And I'm scared. I'm nervous. Like, I don't know what's going to happen out there. But that's part of why I like it. Um, It makes me feel like very brave and I have to be calm while I'm doing it or else things will fall apart. Like I have to kind of keep it together for her, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It's like the most therapeutic thing in a way. It's like you, it seems like from an outsider's perspective, someone who's ridden a horse twice in his life, (laughs) um, it, it seems like you have to invest so much in the emotional relationship with this relatively empathetic animal. Yeah. Um, It's this 900-pound, sometimes 1,200-pound animal that you are taking care of. They're like a giant, frightened baby. My horse is afraid of squirrels. She's afraid of the sound of Velcro. I never can guess what she's going to be afraid of. I always think it's going to be like, oh, look, there's a you know crazy lady hula hooping, literally is something I saw the other day, and I thought my horse would be afraid of, and she wasn't. But then like a tree branch you know, crackles, and she jumps like, oh, I'm going to be killed by a lion, you know, it's, um, but, but in some ways, like, that's, you know, I, I relate to that as an anxious person, so I'm able to, like, kind of take care of her in those moments. How often do you ride? Um, I go, I'd say, on average, four times a week. I don't always ride her, though. Sometimes I just go and, like, walk her around and hang out with her. 
feed her carrots. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I feed her Altoids. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that a thing? Yeah, I think she likes peppermint. All uh, right. Yeah, I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess an Altoid is a peppermint. <laughs> <laughs> the curiously strong one. <laughs> uh, Lisa, can you give me an update on Martha Stewart's pony? Oh, Ben Chunch? Yeah. Sometimes called Ban Chunch. You know, she hasn't been posting about Ban Chunch as much. Um, and I just kind of wonder because she got him for her grandchildren. And I'm like, do they actually ride him? Like, what's going on with that? How's his training doing? She got him as quite a young horse. And so now he's getting to be a little older. He's probably better behaved now. Um, but yeah, she just doesn't post about him nearly enough. So I kind of got to flesh out my my Martha information with more stuff from the rest of her life and her other animals. I mean, we're on NPR right now, Lisa. Yeah. And I'm not going to make presumptions about what radio station Martha Stewart listens to in her home in Connecticut or wherever. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to say maybe she listens to the classic rock station sometimes. Maybe. Maybe she's on Stern 101 or whatever it is on Sirius XM. But I'm going to guess that we have as close to a direct line to Martha Stewart. (laughs) As you're going to get. I just would love to meet her and talk about her pony. I I feel like now that I have my own pony, we've got something in common. Like, she's got a fell pony. I've got a fjord pony. Like, I just feel like we could be in the same, you know, we've got a lot in common now. I think you could could do it. Yeah. I think Martha, Martha. I want to ride Ben Chanch. That's my, that would be like my dream. Martha, let, (laughs) let Lisa ride Ben Chunch. I'm not even asking to ride one of the big ones because she has Frisian horses, which are huge. I just want to ride the little guy. Let Lisa Chunch. <laughs> Hashtag let Lisa Chunch. Yeah. She does not have to acknowledge me in any way. She's like, she's got her own thing going on. No, she does. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne from NPR. Martha Stewart. Hashtag let Lisa Chunch. <laughs> Lisa Hanawalt, congratulations on Tuca and Birdie. It's thank you. so great, and I'm so happy for you, and con- and thank you for all of your wonderful work. Oh, uh, thank you so much. I just love it to death. <laughs> Lisa Hanawalt, the long-anticipated second season of Tuca and Birdie premieres June 13th on Adult Swim. Lisa also hosts the hilarious Baby Geniuses podcast, here at Maximum Fun. In it, she and her co-host Emily Heller research and learn about topics like McDonald's characters, squirrel bridges, and something called the Great Michigan Pizza Funeral. That's a great show. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where thanks to a bit of late night sale spotting, I bought a truly absurdly huge monitor. I mean, it is like, I basically feel like I am working in a, a, a scene in a Tom Clancy movie set in CIA headquarters. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. 
You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. I am on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.